You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. Blake spends the afternoon in the office Bismi has found him, sat at a computer, going through reports, many of them trivial, that seem to have nothing to do with the murder. When she asks him what he is looking for, he mumbles something about things that make no sense, but doesn't seem to feel any obligation to elaborate. Bismi comes in around five and tells him that TFL have confirmed that no driver had been assigned to the empty train, although a service should have been timetabled to run at that time. There are also inconsistencies with the CCTV footage from other stations along the line. Some of the cameras have captured nothing but static. Others show the train pulling in and its doors opening, but nobody getting on or off. No, they wouldn't, Blake says with a vague impatience, as if he doesn't quite understand why she's still going on about this. Thing is, I checked, sir. That time of day is usually busy. There should have been someone waiting. What are you suggesting? Bismi frowns. The truth is, she doesn't know. All she can be sure of is that Blake knows more than he is telling her. Maybe she thinks that if she collects enough evidence of what she can't be sure, the wall of his silence will crack and let her in. I like things that make sense, sir, and I don't like any of this. Does it make sense to you? He looks up from the computer screen, makes a wary study of this young woman. Does he trust her less than she trusts him? No. From his point of view, he can see how her cleverness, her doggedness, could make his own work more annoying than he would like. He prefers to get on with things, without worrying about explaining, or, more likely, talking around what he is doing. You've seen the same evidence I have, Bismi, and none of it seems connected to the murder scene. Except for that girl, Theodora Jones. That train, if it had run on schedule, would have passed through Westminster within 15 minutes of the projected time of death. Perfect timing if she's fleeing the scene. She and this mystery man are the only two people we're able to place on that train. Near that train, Blake says. They came out of the tunnel five minutes after it was due. Hell of a coincidence. Blake sits back in his chair rubs his eyes and folds his arms. Right, let's talk this through then. You think this young woman, Miss Jones, murders a politician of no particular interest to anybody, then hijacks a tube train to travel one stop, but loses interest halfway there and decides to walk? Bismi bristles, reading his tone for mocking, but he only sits there, patiently waiting for her to do the work. Well, I did say it didn't make sense, sir. Forget the train, forget Miss Jones. Forget the girl. Surely she's our best lead. Blake opens the folder of crime scene photos that are on the desk before him. The folder and its contents are sitting so neatly, so perfectly square with the corners of the desk, that Bismay had assumed he hadn't touched them yet. He fans out half a dozen photos with the easy skill of a card shark. There was a safe in the office. Something was being kept in it. Something that isn't there now. How do you know there was something in it? because somebody killed a not-very-interesting politician to empty it. I'll tell you something else that's interesting. He replaces the photos in careful order and puts the folder back as was. Takes a second folder full of tidily stacked printouts. The statement from the victim's wife says he had a call from a colleague, a junior colleague in some distress. There was an argument. The colleague needed something from the office urgently. What if it was in the safe? We can only assume. Now, what would cause you to phone your boss at four in the morning and demand he come and meet you? I'd have to be at knife point, sir. Glad to hear it, and yes, your life would have to depend on it. You think someone was threatening the colleague? There was no colleague. Sir? 
Phone records say no call was made or received, all office staff accounted for. Nobody else was in the office. Bismay frowns, allows herself a moment to put this information in some kind of order. One moment isn't enough, so she takes another three. So who was he meeting? I need you to find out what was in the safe and who put it there. We don't have CCTV of it coming out, but chances are we can see who put it in. You want me to go back through the tapes? How far exactly? Blake is thinking of Theodora Jones, the story she told him about her boyfriend, the boyfriend who no longer existed. I'd say around three months. When we find out what is in the safe, we can work out who might have wanted it. Enough to kill for it? Quite. That's our lead? Indeed. He turns back to the computer, the meeting over. Bismi doesn't move. Sir, the tapes, Bismi. I need to know what was in the safe, what our man was killed for. The foot? Which foot? His left foot from memory. Why take the rest of his body but leave that behind? Blake's face is blue in the light from his monitor, his eyes scanning another report that doesn't make sense. For luck, he says. Luck? Like a rabbit's foot? They always leave a little something behind, a finger, an ear, a foot. When you've lived as long as they have, you get superstitious. Who are they? Well, I know who they are. That much is obvious. What I want to know is who they're working for. Are you saying you know who the murderer is, sir? Blake blinks, remembers where he is, who he is talking to. He stares, and as he stares, seems to age a few years. Midlife encroaches. That conversation didn't happen, he says. It didn't? Not yet. Oh, no, Ismay nods. Not yet. You decided not to ask about the foot. You left the room a minute ago and went to check the CCTV. Oh, that's right. Now I think about it, I stopped you on the way out and asked you to find me a car. There's somewhere I need to be. That's right, sir. Will do. Bismi leaves the office. She closes the door. Has the sense she's walked into a room and forgotten her purpose. Well, old age comes on fast. That stops her. She almost remembers something. On the way out of the building, she stops by the front desk to ask about a car. Across the road, two men in grey suits wait. The younger turns his collar up against a thin drizzle. Do you think he knows what he's doing yet? The Chosen will have his ways, Woosley. Ask me, I'd be a better Chosen. God knows I've worked it out by now. I would have been in there with the sword. Ka-chunk! The ways of the table are certainly mysterious. Ours is not to question their wisdom. Says them. What is wisdom anyway? Wisdom is a tree of life. Wisdom is better than gold. Better than rubies. All them proverbs. I'll tell you what wisdom is. Wisdom is what people in charge tell you is smart while they get to keep all the gold. They're not palming me off with platitudes and pennies. I'd rather have rubies any day. Woosley sneers, pleased with this evening's philosophising. Do you think he's got it on him? Are you asking me again? I like to hear you say it. The sword is always on hand for the Chosen. I'm going to have a big, sod-off scabbard. Proper bling. None of this skulking around, staring at computers, pretending to be people I'm not. The Dark is going to see me coming a million miles away. Ka-chunk! That's me, the Chosen. Crow holds out his hand to his squire. The younger man stares at the hand. Getting the idea, he puts out a palm and two gold coins drop into it. What's this? English breakfast, Crow says. Milk, 
and two sugars. Woosley nods and disappears into the evening traffic. Crow watches him go, swinging his invisible sword. Ka-chunk, he says, under his breath. Really? He would worry for the future, but then he remembers. There is no future. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Written and performed by Mike Bartlett Book 1. How to Disappear Completely Episode 8 Kilby slams the door behind him, shoving the remaining cats aside with elbow and boot. The cab pulls away from the curb, music blaring, old music in content and delivery. Kilby smiles across the back seat at Theo's confusion. Extracting his packet, he taps out a fresh cigarette and passes it over. Theo takes it and studies it, unsure of the price tag. Her nose is still full of the thick nicotine fug of 1979. A tabby cat reaches up to prod the cigarette with a curious paw. The cab stinks of cat. Hairs float like spores in the air. Theo feels enveloped in a writhing mass of feline. They ooze into every available crevice, nuzzling neck and ankle. She has the sense that Kilby is expecting her to complain, to say something at the very least. She resolves not to be the first to point out the obvious. You said the pub was on a manor. A small manor? Constance said they were little pockets of the past. How is that supposed to work? Kilby settles in, leaning back, cigarette aloft like a raconteur barfly. Three cats fight over the right to annex his lap. Do you know, Aristotle believed that if nothing changes, time doesn't pass. You've probably experienced this yourself. Yes, I grew up in Perth. I'll take your word for it. What I meant was, you've waited for a bus that doesn't seem to be coming, your phone battery's dead, you're not wearing a watch. It doesn't matter how long you wait, the bus isn't coming. So what do you do? Get a minicab? <laughs> Shh. You get restless. You stand up and start pacing about. Why? I don't know, because I'm bored? Or cold? Both. No, you do it because it shortens the wait. Time moves more slowly when you're moving around. Less time passes for you before the bus arrives. Isn't that interesting? Shut up. Kilby lifts the black cat from his lap and places it by his boots. It is immediately replaced on his lap by a Burmese. Yeah, I know how it sounds. The point is... Your time isn't my time, and it isn't the bus's time. You're pacing up and down in one time zone, while the bus is zooming around in its own time zone, where time is even slower. But sooner or later, your two time zones are going to meet up in an event we'll call Event A. Jones gets on the bus. With me? Theo, and not at all? Excellent. Kilby lifts the Burmese and lightly tosses it across the floor. This is the fun part. Time isn't measured by hours and minutes. It's observed events. Choices, decisions and actions. Before something happens, other happenings are possible. Before you decide to get on the bus, other choices are possible. Other events. Event B. Jones decides to walk. Event C. The bus takes a detour. As soon as event A happens, those other events cease to exist. Usually. Usually. Well, say you decide to get on the bus, but the bus decides to detour. Only one of those events is true, but your time zones are out of sync. Relatively speaking, your now happens before the bus's now. So the bus collects you, and also, it doesn't. Sorry, what's all this got to do with the manners? 
Kilby kicks aside a marmalade kitten that is grappling with his bootlaces. Because that extra event, that extra moment of time that can't have happened, has to go somewhere. On the face of it, it doesn't matter, because you still end up where you were going, no real damage done. Event A gets pushed off out of sight where it can't be observed, and event C becomes history. Who does the pushing? No, never mind that. The point is, event A is forgotten, except for a few little things that don't make sense anymore. A charge on your Oyster card for the ride you didn't take, half a memory of dozing off against the bus window, or maybe you find that you remember things a little differently to everyone else, but they seem so certain you're wrong that you end up convinced you're the one with the problem. Sound familiar? Yes, Theo thinks. No, she says. That's because it's still there, a little bubble of bad time, a few hours, days or weeks that did and didn't happen, on an endless loop, invisible to anyone who doesn't know to look. That's a manner. He is all brisk confidence and lazy charm, but she can't help feeling that he doesn't understand, let alone believe, half the things he is saying. That doesn't bother her. What bothers her is the creeping suspicion that she does. Why don't I know about them? Manners? Why doesn't everyone? You can't see them if you don't know they're there. A gate won't open unless it's directly observed, and it can't be observed until you've seen it opened. So those girls at the bus stop opened the gate so you could see it. Guides can do that. Unlike the rest of us, they see the scars manners leave. Are we done? He is so frank, so unashamed with this nonsense, that Theo again has the feeling that she is the one with the problem. She worries this is intentional, that he is gaslighting her with straight-faced insanity, time loops and pockets, buses that do and don't arrive. But to what end? No, she says. No, we're near done. You said you could help me find Josh, but how can you find him when the police can't? Because I know where you left him. The police, bless them, just aren't equipped. And where did I leave him? Kilby's smile is generous, like this is a game and they are equal players. Yesterday. Yesterday. Theo feels something heavy turn over in her gut. The card said time travel. You really weren't joking. You didn't think I was. Because I was desperate or deluded. You're a time-travelling detective. Sorry, I can't say that with a straight face, not when I'm this sober. I won't take it personally, but yes, on my good days. Isn't that cheating? You could solve every murder mystery. Kilby strained smoke through his teeth. I could, but there's no money in it. And meddling with murder scenes tends to raise all manner of irksome legal questions. Okay, but... Well, don't you have some kind of moral obligation? I didn't read the fine print. Look, the only good reason to get involved in a murder is the one reason you mustn't. You're saying you can't stop it. Everyone has a clock ticking inside them, Jones. Your days are numbered. Add or subtract from the total, and it causes all kinds of problems, cosmically. Theo lets that pass. Something heavy and poisonous has set up camp in her stomach. Do you think that's what this is? A murder? Yes. But I don't think your boyfriend is the victim. In fact, I don't think he was involved at all. No? No. Looking out the window, Theo realises they are not in Camden anymore. The city passes in dizzy, drunken gulps and belches, spinning traffic at Elephant and Castle, queues for night buses at Trafalgar Square, closed pubs and empty pavements near Liverpool Street. Each corner leads to a wrong turn, making nonsense of geography. Theo's head sags and her eyeballs ache. She recalls the deaths of drunken knights in the back seats of minicabs, holding on to herself, determined not to vomit, counting off landmarks on the journey home. Tonight, she is sober, more or less, but feels no better. How are you 
doing that, she says, steadying herself and leaning forward in her seat. Nero, one hand on the wheel, taps the dashboard above the tape deck. There is a pile of papers there which appear to be posters for lost cats. Beneath is wedged a gadget boasting a series of dials, clocks and compasses and electrometers. Needles spin in every direction but north. Oh, God, Theo says. Please don't tell me that's a time machine. Uncertainty engine, Nero says. A cab's perfect for it, Kilby says. Cabs are surrounded by uncertainty. Is it coming? Is it vacant? Is it stopping? Where the hell are we? You're saying the cab is trying to confuse me. No, we're trying to confuse it. I told you, time needs to be observed to be fixed. That engine generates an uncertainty field. It repels accurate observation. As a result, the cab becomes confused about where or when it is. Once that happens, it's no great effort for Nero to convince the vehicle it's somewhere and when else. Kilby taps his cigarette pocket against his wrist until another spills out. Although, it does mean it can be a bugger finding where you parked. Theo's head is heavy and her shoulders sore. She herself is swamped by uncertainty. Everything and nothing is true. This is Kilby's work. The cab, unobserved, slips between now and then and here and there. Out the window it is Archway, Wimbledon, Highgate Cemetery, dusk and daylight and electric orange darkness. Theo tries to think of the right question for no other reason than she hopes it will annoy Kilby. What powers it? The engine, I mean. Well, you do, Jones. Nero switches off the motor. We're here. Kilby reaches behind the seat and pulls out a stainless steel flask, which he hands to Theo. You'll need this, he says, and possibly a bucket. Josh was saying November. November? How drunk are you? Sorry, August? The Soho pub is packed and humid. Theo puts a cigarette behind her ear, ready to press into the pavement fog outside, but not wanting to miss an argument. Their three new flatmates squeak their chairs, passing embarrassed glances. An hour into their first Friday night out, and already a Barney. This is a joke. You're trying to annoy me. February? You can't just keep saying months. May. What date? Theo, let's leave it. You've got 31 to choose from. Come on, let's be having you. Josh turned out his palms, appealing to Justin, blokey camaraderie. Justin, who started the argument with idle chatter about birthdays, folded his arms and gave a tight shake of the head. On your own, pal. Let's talk about this later, Theo. We're scaring the horses. You're scaring me. I've been shagging a stranger. You know something my nan used to say? If a boy asks you three times how you take your tea, he isn't interested enough. How do I like my tea? Theo? Earl Grey, black with honey. I knew that. Favourite book? It's not important. Wuthering Heights. Josh lifted his empty pint glass and smiled brightly at the rest of the table. Anyone want another drink? The rest of the table winced. Bettina, whose birthday had inspired the drinks, looked fatally sullen. This is basic stuff, Josh. This isn't mastermind. This is entry level. One point per answer. Behind the abrasiveness, the performative brawling... Theo was craving reassurance. Josh had been her one certain thing. She had resented him for that, for his steadiness. She used to think he was soft, worried she pitied him. She wanted him to be more difficult, so not everything was her fault. She wanted not to be the one who started every fight. Josh had always loved her too easily, too keenly. His language of love was one of small comforts. Theo had always spoken in catastrophes. And now... 
You're right, Theo. It's just trivia. It doesn't mean anything. To be honest, I've got more important things on my mind right now. There was a gruffness to his tone that surprised her, and imperiousness too. She wondered if it had been there since he won the gig in Whitehall, since he had bought a Ted Baker suit on the promise of his first paycheck. She was surprised how much she missed his softness. Oh, you do? Like what exactly? Josh sniffed, all self-importance. He puffed up his chest and pricked at himself. Bugger if I can remember. A whoosh of a sigh and his shoulders slumped. The table relaxed into laughter. Theo too. She kicked Josh in the arse as he made for the bar. Any lurking discomfort was shoved down, down where she wasn't going to notice it. Not tonight. At bedtime, she lay dizzy on the mattress that came with the room, counting cracks in the ceiling. Josh came in, stripped down to his jocks, and crawled into bed beside her. He lay face down and groaned, his right hand flapping about for her, coming to rest across her ribs. May the 6th, he said. What? And you don't have tea in the morning, you drink coffee. A big cup so you can smoke two cigarettes before you have to do anything else. Tea and cigarettes make you feel nauseated. Theo didn't move. Her face turned away, feigning offence even if she had already forgotten the argument. Keep talking. Your parents' names are Roger and Julie. You have a younger brother named John, but we don't like to mention him. I'm not sure why. You grew up in Fremantle. Got in some brainy school, but dropped out in year 12. <gasps> he yawned. Enough. I'll tell you when it's enough. Uh, you're the only person I've met who never talks about a career. I'm not sure if the right job even exists for you. You're so worried about being boring. I don't know. Another yawn. More, she said. I'm almost flattered by your rudeness. Um, uh, music? Your favourite song is, I forget, basically any song about someone getting their heart made into mincemeat? Which is weird, because I don't think it's ever happened to you. Sometimes I think you kind of wish it would. His voice is a low murmur, muffled by Egyptian cotton, high thread count, talking in slow motion. Like all those miserable old books you read, Hardy and Wolf and... Bronte, like, life only means something if it's tragic. Slower. Everything has to mean something with you. You know, the rest of us just get on with it. Slower. I guess I admire that in you. This cheered Theo about as much as it wounded her. He had been paying more attention than she thought, but that brought certain complications she wasn't ready to face. To deflect... She unfolded her arms, exposing a t-shirt written up to her bra. Okay, you have my permission to ravage me. She waited. Josh was snoring into a new drool patch. The next morning, she was stealing socks when she found a slender parcel in Josh's top drawer. A brown envelope, no name or address, ripped open at the top. Inside was Josh's passport, his driver's license, a couple of bank statements, his national insurance card and a slim Cahir. She thumbed this last item with a bomb-maker's care. It looked a whole lot like a diary. She felt an almost erotic rush of anticipation and terror. A better girl would have put it back unread. Never mind, she could be that girl tomorrow. To her disappointment, the pages were filled with notes. Josh's full name and family tree, his birthday and educational history, places he'd travelled. Research for a CV, maybe? but the detail was obtuse. Favourite foods and films, hobbies and dislikes, like he was applying to be a playboy bunny. 
With a jolt, Theo realised the next pages were about her. Awkward, intimate information rendered prosaic and dull, like she was a textbook to be studied as duty rather than pleasure. The oddest thing was she knew the words there already. Josh used them last night on the mattress, almost word for word. Life only means something if it's tragic. I think everything has to mean something to her. Me, I just try to get on with things. She shoved the book back in the envelope, feeling an urge to wash her hands. She didn't know what to think about any of this. In the kitchen, while the coffee brewed and cooled to be thrown out undrunk, she googled early-onset dementia, looking for symptoms to diagnose Josh, wondered if he would recognise her when he got home that evening. And then the coffee was cold and she was late, and when she looked the next day, the envelope was gone. Now Theo spills onto the street like last night's laundry. She is crippled by a sudden jet lag, an oily tiredness that demands a hot bath and three days sleep. It takes her too long to realise where she is, by which time Kilby is sitting against the cab fender, his zippo flaring in a cupped palm. Nero, waiting in the driver's seat with his book open, raps against the glass. Not on the bonnet! Kilby laughs but doesn't move. He's like a father to this car. Poor lad was born feeling responsible for the world and anything in it. It's really not good for his health. Theo holds up the flask, surprised she has any strength left in her arm. What's this? Kilby smiles. Well, right now, I suppose it could be anything. Soup? Plutonium? Cat pee? It'll stay that way until you open it. Theo has. It's tea. Black tea. And there go all those other futures. Like I said, you'll need it. Leave a cup for me. He takes the flask back. I feel drunk, like I haven't slept for a week. Well, you've just lost 24 hours. Lost? It takes it out of you, travel. He passes her the cup. Here we are, then. Whatever you do, don't shout. Shout? Theo is confused until she sees where Kilby is looking down the street. Her street. Two figures are walking, swerving more accurately, towards her. Josh. She can't help it. She calls his name into the soft palm Kilby has clasped across her mouth. Never saw that coming, he says. Who's that he's... The question dies. A surge of jealousy gives way to nausea. Theo immediately notes three new things she doesn't like about herself, starting with the fact she is on the wrong side of the street. Huh, you were telling the truth. Theo laughs. The same nervous hiccup that afflicts her when a jumbo jet powers down the runway. A rush of mania as sudden and terrible possibilities open. Death or adventure. My God! Pulling her phone from her coat, she checks the time and date. Last night, just after she left the pub. Kilby snatches the phone, hissing, I told you to switch that off! You're going to get us all in trouble! Give it back! What trouble? I told you, time needs to be observed. This phone records your precise location at this precise moment. You're right here, right now, which is a problem, because you're already standing over there, then... People notice that sort of thing, and if people notice, we have a problem. Do we? This isn't a manner, this is real history. Yesterday, and we're not supposed to be here. So don't change anything. Don't stop any murders, and also don't murder anyone. History needs to look like it makes sense. Trust me, we really don't want to make a mess. Theo watches herself slump against the doorframe as Josh checks his pockets for the front door key. She resents this younger, carefree version of herself, just as she pities her the morning ahead. I thought I was taller. She sips the tea. It is hot 
sweet, and more real than anything else this side of the street. Across the road, the front door closes. Something like a hangover has come over her, an enervating dose of reality after a boozy fantasy. She thought she would be pleased to see Josh. Instead, the fantasy of Josh, her absent lover, has collapsed. She isn't sure she still believes anything she said to Kilby and resents him for tricking those words out of her. It was part of his sales pitch, she realises, making her want Josh so much that she might be ready to pay for him. But she did say those things, didn't she? She must care. All this has to be more than simple guilt. The cup is empty. She passes it to Kilby. You wear two watches, she says. Both of them wrong. Wriggle room, he says. Plausible deniability. Explain that. Explain everything. Kilby sits further back on the bonnet, ignoring the hammering on the windscreen. It's about not making a mess. You can't be in two places at once, not obviously. There needs to be room for confusion. An analogue watch has imprecision. Two watches have ambiguity. Uncertainty? Right. Tell me, where were you at 7.16pm yesterday? Theo considers. It seems a week ago. At the pub, with Josh. Doing what, exactly? I don't know, talking, drinking? Maybe playing darts? Well, nothing important, so you might as well have been somewhere else. If anyone asks, maybe you have your timing wrong. What if I told you that you didn't actually get to the pub until 7.36? Didn't I? No, wait, I'm, I'm sure I got there before 7. Wrong. What if I could show you that you were actually somewhere else at 7.16? Hard evidence. Irrefutable. Really? No, no hang on, I, I wouldn't believe it. Wouldn't you? To travel safely, we need to be able to doubt ourselves, to convince ourselves we weren't exactly where we thought we were when we thought we were. We're the time machines, Jones. He is getting poetic, flooding her with nonsense when it is facts she needs. She isn't going to let him convince her she is this crazy. We are. Well, a bird doesn't know anything about time. It's only clocks of the sun and the seasons. Tomorrow and last month don't mean anything. Only to us. Time is part of us, so the less we know about where and when we are, the greater the freedom we have. I find whiskey very helpful in that regard. Theo thinks of the uncertainty engine. You said I powered that thing. Right. And you said I lost 24 hours coming here. That wasn't poetry. Nope. When we go back, do I get it back? Kilby grinds his smoke out beneath his heel. Does a cigarette give back the five minutes it just took off your life? So we couldn't, say, go back 100 years? Well, you could, but I don't think you'd enjoy it very much. To get this far has already cost you a day. Explains the jet lag, Theo thinks. Me, not you. Kilby shrugs. You're the client. Okay, so I've lost a day. What about the future? How much does that cost me? Well, you can't go into the future because there is no future. It doesn't exist yet. The past is made up of observed events, and the present is an event we all agree is happening now. Beyond the present, everything is just probability. Infinite possible events. No future. Theo considers why this depresses her. She is hoping, for clues, to know what she does next. Exactly how shitty a time machine is this? Kilby lifts his chin, refusing to be wounded. Well, exactly how many have you seen? There is another rap on the windscreen. Nero beckons them back inside. As Theo sits down, having cleared a patch of leather between cats, 
Nero slides back the glass divider between driver and passengers. In his hand is an old London A to Z, thumbed to tenderness, plastered with post-it notes, and open on Theo Street. As Kilby switches on the ceiling light, Theo sees the page is marked with four ink stains. The silver fountain pen responsible is in Nero's other hand. These stains seem to flex very slightly, like sedate jellyfish, but Theo puts that down to the bad light. She remains sure that all of this will make much more sense come sunrise. Nero sniffs. Found him. I saw him, Theo says. He's just across the street. Now he is, Nero says. Already knew that. Look what happens, though. He glances at Theo, but doesn't meet her eye. That's you, he points at one stain, then another. That too, that's Kilby, that's your boyfriend. Theo counts the stains again. Where are you? Forget me. With the back of his hand, Nero wipes clear Kilby and the second of Theo's stains. Look what happens to your boyfriend if I speed things up. He revs the motor. The dials on the uncertainty engine spin. Theo yawns, apologises, yawns again, scowls. Uh, Are you stealing more of my time? The two remaining stains seem to vibrate with a new anxiety. Nero and Kilby seem so blasé about this that Theo feels it would be gauche to point it out. Across the road, Josh comes out through the front door. Nero eases up on the accelerator, leans over to the glove box, and pulls out a Polaroid camera. He takes two quick snaps. Josh flinches at the flashes, stares at the cab, and, recognising nothing, hurries off up the street. Aren't we following him? Theo says. No need. Nero tosses the camera to the passenger seat, files the photos in the glove box, and returns his attention to the open book. Again, the motor revs. Kilby tuts. You're going too fast. Skipping ahead. Want to show you something. Josh's stain twitches and shifts across the page. Nero flicks through the book, tracing a rapid path across London. The stain comes to rest at page 43, E18. Primrose Hill, Nero says. Interesting, Kilby says. What's your boyfriend doing there, Jones? Theo is trying not to notice the dawn light in the windows. But he only just left. Yes and no, Kilby says. Listen, we do this a lot. Through trial and error, we've discovered long stakeouts do nothing for the harmony of our partnership. There are only so many trivia questions one man, uh, this man, can answer. Only so many arguments to be had about the stereo. That book is a shortcut. The ink is time-sensitive. Saves a lot of petrol and shoe leather. Besides, try as we might, we've never quite got the hang of being inconspicuous. I'm inconspicuous, Nero says sniffing at the street light in the window. Just not round here. Theo keeps her focus on Kilby. It's showing us the future. No, I told you the future doesn't exist. Tomorrow is the present. Today is history. Watch this, Nero says. The ink stain that is Josh convulses, blinks, and vanishes. For the first time since Theo met him, Kilby looks surprised. That is actually quite interesting. What happened? Your boyfriend vanished. And that's why we're here, isn't it? Even if he swapped his soul, it should still show on the map. Theo blinks. Soul? Passport, Nero says, which is no help at all. Could be a lock manor. Kilby nods. When you know. We could ask around. Theo gives up on following this. Maybe the ink ran out, she says. Take it back. Kilby says, I want to see where he went between here and there.
Nero flicks dials and switches and puts the cab into reverse. The stain reappears, twitches, and takes off across the page. This time, Nero tracks it to Westminster. That's Josh's office, Theo says. So he didn't disappear. But even as she is speaking, the stain fades and reappears, as if embarrassed by all the attention. Gilby eases into a smile. Well, let's see for ourselves, shall we? Driver? I ain't your driver, Nero says. Of course you're not, Kilby says. Drive on. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk, written and performed by Mike Bartlett. To find out more about this podcast, check out salmonanddusk.com. been listening to a Burnt Toast production.